Welcome back, Heming Brainiacs, to the Heming Brainiac List podcast of excellence. We're talking about chapter 66. Philip meets a lovely new lady, but doesn't love her at all. It was um, a bit of a kick in the guts, wasn't it, when that line came about? Because I'm thinking, okay, he's met another lady. I'm not thrilled. You know, I'd like to just see Philip being Philip. But this one seems pretty awesome. So, awesome. That's great. And then the line comes that he doesn't love her at all, despite how perfect she seems to be. Oh, dear. Philip, Philip, Philip. To me, it seems like he likes the chase somewhat. And he's so kind of... His personality is so entwined with his insecurity that if the chase doesn't play off his insecurity, there's something missing for him. It's almost like he likes trying to prove himself, you know? Um, So she doesn't seem to mind at all that he's got um, a club foot. And she's just completely into him. And that doesn't seem to rub with him. He needs her to be kind of like a bit aloof and a bit indifferent so that he can kick into um, insecure mode and, and kind of overcompensate. It's an ugly look on young Philip. I, I don't like his attitude towards relationships, I tell you that much. Um, Swim said the mum fish, she said this, Once again, the author describes a woman as unattractive. Mrs. Nesbitt was not more than 25 with a pleasant, ugly face. It is annoying the heck out of me. Yeah, it is quite annoying. I found this fun article about men describing women in literature equating them as birds, cats, ugly, but you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. This quote stood out. In any case, John Bailey's real-life use of the trope leads me to question the extent to which men sum up their female dates, balancing their conventional beauty against their inevitable sexual allure. Against the social capital their their beauty will bring to the man when he claims her for himself and will be judged by her beauty in public. Women worry about our own looks, wondering if we measure up. Men apparently also worry about women's looks, wondering if we'll measure up. The most insidious, distasteful thing about men and male characters, proxy male authors, getting caught up in this psychological minefield around beauty standards is the idea that men should be congratulated for finding a non-model girlfriend sexually attractive, regardless of her flaws, which are only flaws in the mind, anyhow. Don't any don't nobody get no cookie for that. <laughs> um, yeah, I can see how that would be very frustrating. I know I've definitely you know when I've had partners, new partners, um, thought things like I find them attractive, but I wonder if like other people will. I've definitely had that feeling. Um, or a feeling of you know pride when, um when you've got a very traditionally beautiful partner and thinking, oh, when I introduce them to my friends, they're going to be so impressed by how good-looking she is, that kind of thing. Yeah, I felt that. And I know that it has gone in other ways. I remember partners saying things like, kind of like just one one um, girl I dated years ago, she said something like that where it was like, I wonder what my friends will think of you. And I kind of pressed her on it. And you mean, I said, you mean like what I look like? And she's like, yeah, like I really find you attractive, but you've got a different kind of look. And I just wonder what my friend, and I was like, hey, what does it matter? 
What are you doing here? Stop uh, trying to like figure out where I'll stand socially within, in the status of your friend group, you know? Or how many like points you'll get for having me as your man. It was quite actually quite funny. Um, it didn't really offend me, but definitely there's been cases where I know my partner has had the same thing, you know, a new partner thinking, I wonder what my friends will think of him. Um, and, you know, I think we do it in all different ways, not just looks wise, but, you know, what I do for a living or what she does for a living or you know, all different things or what's their personality like, you know, just will my friends like them? Will my family like them? Um... Why am, I got, why am I getting off on this little tangent here? What am I, I can't even remember where our starting point was. Oh, yeah. Do you think that Philip doesn't like her because he sees her as ugly? Do you think that's the reason that he doesn't love her? Or there's just sort of a lack of spark? I don't think it has much to do with her looks, to be honest. I think the reason that he doesn't love her is, like I was saying before, she's she... There's no chase. She's she's up for it. She's into him. And so he's not getting that engagement of the chase of trying to win her. And I think people who have low self-esteem really kind of need that chase because they want to prove something, you know. Um, I think that's what we're witnessing. It's very unattractive. Starfall 15 says this, At the end of the chapter, I doubted myself about Nora having a child. I had to go back and read her introduction. I feel the author forgot about him slash her. It is going too smoothly between them, and I dread that Philip is going to break her heart. Entrepa says, It's like the child only exists to give Nora a reason to have to work from home. Um... I mean, it's only been one chapter. Maybe the child will, you know, come into the equation and and be a bigger part of the relationship. But I think you're right about him going to break her heart because, well, because he said he didn't love her. And uh, I'm disappointed in Philip, you know. I am. I was just starting to like him again. He was winning back a few points, and now just straight back into a relationship. And again, it seems on a different level, in a different way, to be unhealthy. Bloody Philip. Um, all right, let's read. Let's keep reading, shall we? I think we shall. I'm really actually quite curious to see where this goes, although, to be honest, I didn't really want more romance in this book these books on this list it's like as soon as there becomes a love interest in the story the story gets kind of hung up on that and i don't know it can be a bit dry it can be a bit boring to just have every book being about will they won't they sort of thing the one thing i will say though about this list is that the hemingway list that is the books on it the relationships in it it's like Hemingway really liked dysfunctional relationships. There's very rarely like a, a healthy relationship, especially the main focus or the main protagonist of the book. Their relationship is always extremely toxic and unhealthy. So it's like Hemingway had a fascination with toxic 
kind of, <clears throat> excuse me, unhealthy relationships? Or is it just that back in the day, that's what books were about? Like, that's just, that was the flavor of the month. Who knows? Okay, chapter 67 goes like this. Philip, Philip looked forward to his return to London with impatience. During the two months he spent at Blackstable, Nora wrote to him frequently long letters in bold large hand in which the, with cheerful humour she described the little events of the daily round, the cosmetic troubles of her landlady, rich food for laughter, the comic vexations of her rehearsals, she was walking on an in, on in an. She was walking on in an. She was walking on in an important spectacle. That's what it says. She was walking on in an important spectacle at one of the London theatres, and her odd adventures with the publishers of novelettes. Philip read a great deal, bathed, played tennis, and sailed. At the beginning of October, he settled down in London to work for the second conjoint examination. He was eager to pass it, since that ended the drudgery of the curriculum. After it was done with, the students became an outpatient clerk and was brought in contact with men and women as well as with textbooks Philip saw Nora every day. Lawson had been spending the summer at Poole and had a number of sketches to show off to show of the harbour and of the beach. He had a couple of commissions for portraits and proposed to stay in London till the bad light drove him away. Hayward, in London too, intended to spend the winter abroad, but remained week after week for sheer inability to make up his mind to go. Hayward had run to fat during the last two or three years. It was five years since Philip first met him in Heidelberg, and he was prematurely bald. He was very sensitive about it, and wore his hair long to conceal the unsightly patch on the crown of his head. His only consolation was that his brow was now very noble. His blue eyes had lost their colour. They had a listless droop, and his mouth, losing the fullness of youth, was weak and pale. He still talked vaguely of the things he was going to do in the future, but with less conviction, and he was conscious that his friends no longer believed in him. When he had drank two or three glasses of whisky, he was inclined to be allegaic. I'm a failure, he murmured. I'm unfit for the brutality of the struggle of life. All I can do is stand aside and let the vulgar throng hustle by in their pursuit of the good things. He gave you the impression that to fail was a more delicate, a more exquisite thing than to succeed. He insinuated that his aloofness was due to distaste for all that was common and low. He talked beautifully of Plateau. I should have thought you'd go through with Plateau by now, said Philip impatiently. Would you? he asked, raising his eyebrows. He was not inclined to pressure the to pursue the subject. He had discovered of late the effective dignity of silence. I don't see the use of reading the same thing over and over again, said Philip. That's only a laborious form of idleness. But are you under the impression that you have so great a mind that you can understand the most profound writer at the first reading? I don't want to understand him. I'm not a critic. I'm not interested in him for the sake for his sake, but for mine. Why do you read, then? Partly for pleasure, because it's a habit, and I'm just as comfortable, I'm just as uncomfortable if I don't read as if I don't smoke, and partly to know myself. When I read a book, I seem to read it with my eyes only, but now and then I come across a passage, perhaps only a phrase, which has a meaning for me, and it becomes part of me. I've got out of the books all that's any use to me, 
and I can't get anything more if I read it a dozen times. You see, it seems to me one's like a closed bud, and most of what one reads and does has no effect at all, but there are certain things that have a peculiar significance for one, and they open a petal, and the petals open one by one, and at last the flower is there. Philip was not satisfied with his metaphor, but he did not know how else to explain a thing which he felt and yet was not clear about. Oh. I just realised something. Just to pause the chapter for one moment. Um, I need to do an ad. <laughs> I need to have an ad space in this chapter. So, here's an ad for you. Patreon.com slash The Hemingway List. If you would like to support the podcast, please do it there. Sorry to interrupt the chapter for an ad. I forgot to do it before the chapter. Uh, let's continue. You want to do things. You want to become things, said Hayward with a shrug of the shoulders. It's so vulgar. Philip knew Hayward very well by now. He was weak and vain, so vain that you had to be on the watch constantly not to hurt his feelings. He mingled idleness and idealism so that he could not separate them. At Lawson's studio one day he met a journalist who was charmed by his conversation and a week later the editor of a paper wrote to suggest that he should do some criticism for him. For 48 hours Hayward lived in an agony of indecision. He had talked of getting occupation of this sort so long that he had not the face to refuse outright, but the thought of doing anything filled him with panic. At last he declined the offer and breathed freely. It would have interfered with my work, he told Philip. What work? asked Philip brutally. My inner life, he answered. Then he went on to say beautiful things about Emile, the professor at Geneva, whose brilliancy promised achievement which was never fulfilled till at his death for the reason of his failure and the excuse were at once manifest in the minute, in the minute, wonderful journal which was found among his papers. Hayward smiled enigmatically. But Haywood could still talk delightfully about books, his taste was exquisite and his discrimination elegant, and he had a constant interest in ideas, which made him an entertaining companion. They meant nothing to him, really, since they never had any effect on him, but he treated them as he might have pieces of china in an auction room, handling them with pleasure in their shape and their glaze, pricing them in his mind, and then, putting them back into their case, thought of them no more. And it was Hayward who made a momentous discovery. One evening after due preparation, he took Philip and Lawson to a tavern situated in Beak Street, remarkable not only in itself but and for its history. It had memories of 18th century glories, which excited the romantic imagination, but for its snuff, which was the best in London, and above all for its punch. Hayward led them into a large room, long room, dingily magnificent, with huge pictures on the walls of nude women, they were vast allegories of the school of Hayden, but smoke, gas, and the London atmosphere had given them a richness which made them look like old masters. The dark panelling, the massive tarnished gold of the cornice, a mahogany, the mahogany tables, gave the room an air of sumptuous comfort, and the leather-covered seats along the wall were soft and easy. There was a ram's head on the table opposite the door, and this contained the celebrated snuff. They ordered punch. They drank it. It was hot rum punch. The pen falters when it attempts to treat of the excellence thereof. 
the sober vocabulary, the sparse epithet of this narrative, and inadequate are in a sorry, here we go again. The pen falters when it attempts to treat of the excellence thereof. The sober vocabulary, the sparse epithet of this narrative are inadequate to the task, and pompous terms, jewelled exotic phrases rise to the excited fancy. It warmed the blood and cleared the head, it filled the soul with well-being, it disposed the mind at once to utter wit and to appreciate the wit of others, it had the vagueness of music and the precision of mathematics. Only one of its qualities was comparable to anything else, it had the warmth of a good heart, but its taste, its smell, its feel were not to be described in words. Charles Lamb, with his infinite tact, attempting to, might have drawn charming pictures of the life of his day. Lord Byron, in a stanza of Don John, aiming at the impossible, might have achieved the sublime. Oscar Wilde, heaping jewels of Ipsfahan upon brocades of Byzantium, might, Byzantium, might have created a troubling beauty. Considering it, the mind reeled under visions of the feasts of the Alagabalus, Alag Alagabalus, whatever that is, and the subtle harmonies of Debussy mingled with the musty fragrant romance of chests in which have been kept old clothes, ruffs, hose, doublets of a forgotten generation, and the wan odour of lilies of the valley and the savour of cheddar cheese. Hayward discovered the tavern at which the priceless beverage was to be obtained by meeting in the street a man called McAllister, who had been at Cambridge with him. He was a stockbroker and a philosopher. He was accustomed to go to the tavern once a week, and soon Philip Lawson and Hayward got into the habit of meeting there every Tuesday evening. Change of manners made it now little frequented, which was an advantage to persons who took pleasure in conversation. McAllister was a big-boned fellow, much too short for his width, with a large fleshy face and a soft voice. He was a student of Kant, and judged everything from the standpoint of pure reason. He was fond of expounding his doctrines. Philip listened with excited interest. He had long come to the conclusion that nothing amused him more than metaphysics, but he was not so sure of their efficacy in the affairs of life. The neat little system which he had formed as the result of his meditations at Blackstable had not been of conspicuous use during his infatuation for Mildred. He could not be positive that reason was much help in the conduct of life. It seemed to him that life had lived itself. He remembered very vividly the violence of the emotion which had possessed him and his inability, as if he were tied down to the ground with ropes, to react against it. He read many wise things in books, but he could only judge from his own experience. He did not know whether he was different from other people. He did not calculate the pros and cons of an action, the benefits which must befall him if he did it, the harm which might result from the omission, but his whole being was urged on irresistibly. He did not act with a part of himself, but altogether. The power that possessed him seemed to have nothing to do with reason. All that reason did was to point out the methods of obtaining what his whole soul was striving for. McAllister reminded him of the categorical imperative. Act so that every action of yours should be capable of becoming a universal rule of action for all men. That seems to me perfect nonsense, said Philip. You're a bold man to say that of anything stated by Immanuel Kant, retorted McAllister. Why? Reverence for what somebody said is a stultifying quality. There's a damned sight too much reverence in the world. 
Kant thought things, not because they were true, but because he was Kant. Well, what is your objection to the categorical imperative? They talked as though the fate of empires was in the balance. It suggests that one can choose one's course by an effort of will, and it suggests that reason is the surest guide. Why should it dictate? Why should its dictates be any better than those of passion? They are different, that's all. You seem to be a contented slave of your passions. A slave because I can't help myself, but not a contented one, laughed Philip. While he spoke, he thought of that hot madness which had driven him in pursuit of Mildred. He remembered how he had chafed against it and how he had felt the degradation of it. Thank God I'm free from all that now, he thought. And yet, even as he said it, he was not quite sure whether he spoke sincerely when he was under the influence of passion he had felt a singular vigour, and his mind had worked with unwanted force. He was more alive. There was an excitement in sheer being, an eager vehemence of soul, which made life now a trifle dull. For all the misery he had endured, there was a compensation in that sense of rushing, overwhelming existence, but Philip's unlucky words engaged him in a discussion on the freedom of the will, and McAllister, with his well-stored memory, brought out argument after argument. He had a mind that delighted in dialectics, and he forced Philip to contradict himself. He pushed him into corners from which he could only escape by damaging concessions. He tripped him up with logic and battered him with authorities. At last, Philip said, well, I can't say anything about other people, I can only speak for myself. The illusion of free will is so strong in my mind that I can't get away from it, but I believe it is only an illusion. But it is an illusion which is one of the strongest motives of my actions. Before I do anything, I feel that I have a choice, and that influences what I do. But afterwards, when the thing is done, I believe that it was inevitable from all eternity. What do you deduce from that? asked Hayward. Why, merely the futility of regret. It's no good crying over spilt milk because all the forces of the universe were bent on spilling it. Alright, there we go. Another chapter down. Getting a bit metaphysical. Getting a bit philosophical. But I don't mind it. I don't mind it. In this book, I don't mind it. If you've heard me in previous books, you'll know how I can get very frustrated when it gets too um, metaphysical. But... Um, this book seems to balance it well and does it interestingly. doesn't do it as to sort of like beat its own chest sort of thing. It, it just does it in a way which is um, not pretentious. And I appreciate that very much. All right, have your say about this chapter over on the subreddit. Thank you very much for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.